0: Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other. Hey there, listener, thanks for stopping by. Before we get the podcast started today, I just wanted to tell you about my Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the podcast and donating some money, all you got to do is go to patreon.com forward slash KIPPOD. And there's three separate tiers there where you can get exclusive content, ad free content, and you can even suggest questions for me to ask future guests on the podcast. So, guys, make sure to check out my Patreon. Also, make sure to share this podcast on your social media accounts. Link it to Spotify. Review it on Apple. I would very much appreciate that. So, thanks, guys, and enjoy the episode. And welcome to the Knowledge is Power podcast. I'm your host, Max Willett, and I got another great episode for you. Uh, So, my guest today is uh, Lars... Molin, is that how you pronounce your That's last name? That's close enough, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, that'd yep. be great.
1: Yep. I'm uh, Lars. Last name Molin in Swedish. Molin is okay. close enough here in the US. I'm originally from Sweden. Um, I came to the US um, 21 years ago, actually. And I happened to have a couple of companies here in the US and a couple of companies in Europe before we moved over here. Um, Latest venture is Glenelg, where I basically help small local businesses grow. Uh, I think that's the key, but uh, I'm sure you have questions for me.
0: Yeah, I have a, <laughs> I have a lot of questions. So um, if you want to go like, talk about – because you sent me um, a Google Doc with every business that you've been involved <laughs> in, and and it's a lot. It's yes. kind of crazy. Yes. So I guess I ordered it chronologically on here. Um, but if you want to take a look at it and let me know which ones you want to talk about so like So I understand that you're in the military first. Yes. Is that that's mandatory? It's mandatory Sweden. in yeah. Sweden. Okay. Yes. All right, so man
1: It's mandatory to do military service in Sweden. It was at that time when we lived in Sweden Yes. Yeah,
0: I mean I must say I mean I've never been to Sweden before but from what I can tell it's a beautiful country
1: It's very nice in the summer. Yeah, when it's basically you get a little twilight. I lived in Stockholm You get a little twilight in the summer but the opposite in the winter it's mm-hmm. very dark uh, it drove me crazy when you go to work at and it just sun comes up around 10ish and goes disappears at 2 uh, so you go to wow. the, it's pitch black when you go to work it's pitch black when you come home for me that's it's very depressing but the flip side the summer the sun is out yeah well, so. <laughs> it, it,
0: people complain about here in Rhode Island because right now it gets dark around 4 yeah and, and the light, it doesn't get, I mean, it gets light out around like 6, yes. but people complain about that, you know. That's that's nothing. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know. So your first company here, so wait, so you were in the military I was service. was in the military. And then? Then
1: basically, uh, so the military was after I went through school, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you do basically school, and then you go military, which is mandatory. And after military, I was supposed to go back to school to uh the Swedish equivalent of MIT, uh, but I was there one day, oh, um, and I was my my college degree was engineering, and I went in there and I said, and I looked around and said, I don't want to do this because I see myself working at Ericsson, making designing buttons for the phone in a cubicle, and I can't handle that. So I basically said I'm going to take a break, not start there. My dad was very disappointed. So I did one day at that. Swedish is called kortihor in Swedish. Uh equivalent to MIT and I said no, that's not for me. Um, so I started working at a retail store selling Heathkit kits that you basically build kits. So you buy the kit and you build electronics. Uh, okay. So it was Heathkit it was an American company and I worked there for a while. Um, then they went into computers, so I moved over more to computer side. Um, so that's was basically the beginning of the story.
0: Okay, and then the next one after that was Zenith Data Systems. Yeah, so,
1: so they bought teeth kit and converted it to computers. So it was basically for me it was the same uh, company. Uh, they just switched from basic electronic kits to computers and kits. So it was the beginning when there was uh, you, you had they had this company called H DOS, which was before MS DOS. It was very old school, mm-hmm. uh, but they started the the personal computer thing yes
0: okay so just so everybody follows, i'm going to try to chronologically go over (laughs) you know what 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 businesses you have been involved with so the next one number three is uh jebex is that how you pronounce it
1: yeah so they basically uh zenith decided to close their swedish branch they became the zenith so basically they basically took over the 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 thing and then again i was more into the computers and 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 programming and sales and marketing at that time um and i did that um and then i left them to basically work for a software company called ashton tate which um, had software that had a very f- famous product at that time called dbase and framework and and uh, stuff so i worked for them as the nordic rep or Nordic manager. So I basically traveled to Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and Norway and was basically working with the distributors to get them to sell more software. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when I started to realize that the software industry was not optimized. So that's when I started. My goal was always to have my own business. So when I told my parents, I want to have my own business before I'm 30, that was my goal. I failed with the year. Um, but I started my own business after working for Ashton Tate, and and I saw what the software industry was, and said, "Ooh, I can change the way you sell software."
0: So, so you just you sold software essentially, and what types of software did you sell?
1: Were for Ashton Tate or for my own business? For your for your own business. Okay, so what happens when I worked at Ashton Tate? So, as a software manufacturer, you look at the software and and you sell it for, let's say, $500. Your cost of goods is 25. It's a couple of discs or a CD and printing your manual at that time. And you sold it for, it was high margin. Mm -hmm. And when you sold it at that time, um, you sold it to dealers and they wanted to add services. So they wanted to add their own services. So software was not the key part for them. There was just something for them to sell to the large corporations or customers. And as a software vendor, I just wanted to sell thousands and thousands of boxes of software. Um, So when I started my business, I approached it from that respect that as I'm going to only sell software, and I'm going to not sell any services. So basically, I started a software mail order company that was not heard of at that time. And basically, my goal was to just shift box of Excel or Word or whatever it was from The distributor to the customer without adding any services, installation, support, basically just move boxes from A to B. Okay. Uh, happened to be software and the software vendors loved it because their goal was to send a lot of software. The traditional dealers hated me because I ruined their business model because they were selling software and then services. So the $500 software suddenly a $2,000 investment for the company because they needed the, or we do training, we do support, you have to buy this, you have to buy this. So the the dealers hated us. Yeah. But the software vendors loved us because we we're moving a lot of software.
0: So it was basically, so this is this is how my brain is working right now. So I'm a big fan of The Office, if you're familiar yep. with that show. So in that show, the character Daryl has this idea where the delivery guys of the paper sold directly to customers. Yep. So is that essentially what you were doing with software? Basically. Just cutting out the salesman's up on the higher basically, level? Basically, yes. Okay. So
1: the traditional dealer was buying this and integrating and selling the solution with the computer, the software, the installation, the training, and yada, yada, yada. I basically just sell the box of software. So mm-hmm. I bought the box of software and I sold it. And when I started the business, I want to do something that has a positive cash flow because I think it's important when you start a business and you're not well-funded that you have a positive cash flow. So then mail order was the perfect alternative because the customer pays you up front, you place the order with the distributor, you get the product, and you deliver it to the customer. I have net terms from the distributor, so I'm sitting on the cash from the customer before I have to pay my vendor. So it's very it's very helpful to have a positive cash flow. So when I look at businesses now, I'm trying to get the positive cash flow business. So the customer pays me before I have to pay whoever I buy from or makes it.
0: So that's what positive cash flow is. If you could explain that for for me, it is yes, yeah.
1: yes, basically that I'm sitting on the cash. So again, that's the beauty with with e-commerce or mail order that the customer pays you when they place the order. Mm-hmm. So you you they buy they send you the hundred dollars and then you place the order from the distributor or wherever you get it from for thirty dollar fifty dollars whatever it is so you're sitting on a hundred and you have time to pay the vendor at a later date so that's you know you're sitting with the money in your bank instead of the opposite you have to pay the vendor first and then get the income
0: that's something that i absolutely despise as po's i hate like like Making an, like, having to make something for somebody and not getting paid for it 30 yes. days later. Yes, That's That's how I run, I run my business is you pay for it now or you don't get it ever. Yes. And um, for a lot of big companies, that's a problem. Yes. Because um, I'm not going to say the exact company, but, like, when I was working at another company, you know, we'd get POs that were 120 days out. And it was like a $20,000 job. And for a small business, I mean, that's a lot of yes. money. Yes. And to not have that capital for yes. that long is huge. Yes. So, so in my case, um,
1: uh, I, so I, I approached as working for Ashton Tate. One of the customers was Volvo, the big car manufacturer mm-hmm. in Sweden. And they came and said, we want to buy 500 of your database software, 500 copies of your database software. And we had to go to a dealer, and the dealer said, well, we, need want, we don't want to sell 500. We want to sell 500 software and 500 computers and 500 printers and do a package and, and support Volvo in this case. But Volvo was really, we just need the 500 because we've got our own IT department. We just need 500 boxes of software. And that's where I came in. So I said to Volvo, I can get you 500 boxes of software, very inexpensive, mm-hmm. versus buying from a traditional dealer. So it it changed the way people were buying. So then Volvo said, okay, we'll buy 500 boxes of software from you. So I shipped 500 boxes. And for Volvo's case, I said, you have two options. You can pay me up front, or you can pay me 30 days later, but then you pay a premium for paying 30 days later. So it was cheaper for them to pay up front. So that's what I did.
0: So you just said it'd be more expensive if you don't pay me now. Yeah,
1: so basically, let's say, I can sell you for $200 if you pay me now, or you can pay 240 in 30 days. It's your choice, Mr. Customer.
0: Yeah. Okay, that, that, I mean, that's, that's really good because, I mean, this, this, for me, like I couldn't afford to do an expensive job and then not get paid for it. You know, sometimes, it, you know, it would kind well, of put me out of business, you know. Yeah,
1: but normally you get paid, but it takes a long time and you are out with your investment in material or whatever it is and your time. Mm-hmm. So you can give the option to them basically, or I did at that time saying, hey, this is the price if you pay now. Or this is the price if you pay on 30 days net or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And
0: then they decide. So how did you get in contact? So like to sell software, right? I mean, how did you go to these software companies like Microsoft and say, hey, I want to sell your software? And, and how did you actually get there?
1: So so in that time, the software was basically had Microsoft and they had the distributor or multiple distributors that basically sold the software to the dealers. Mm-hmm. And my job at Ashton Tate was to work with the distributors to buy and sell as much as my software. So I had connections with the distributors. So I basically went to the distributor and said, hey, I'm gonna start my own business. I'm only gonna sell software I wanna buy from you. Um, and that's basically what I did. So they basically, so they were the middleman between let's say Microsoft and me was this distributor that I purchased from.
0: And so, like modern in modern days, you don't need to sell a, a disc for software Correct. anymore. So it's all online. Correct. So is that would that business model still stand today? No. No. Okay. So I think it, it's
1: and that I saw that when at the end before I sold the business that they started to Microsoft was saying we're going to start to license software to to Volvo. So you can buy a five hundred user license. Mm-hmm. And they said yes, we're going to sell it through the normal channel, but you could see the trend of there was no need to basically sell those five hundred because boxes. of the internet well, technology in general they yeah. wanted a license and then internet came, so right now, I don't think that model will work, yes, because now you basically go and
0: download it yourself, even like training software packages you don't really need to buy because there's tutorials on YouTube yes. for free so I, I think there was a wind of opportunity
1: uh, in this in that industry that I was at the right time at the mm-hmm. right places, places
0: i have noticed that because you see a lot of these like guys on shark tank like kevin o'leary yep. and robert Herskovesk or i can't yep. pronounce his last name but they were both and and mark cuban i believe were all involved with software companies
1: kevin was um, i dealt with kevin because he had soft banks at that time so i actually dealt with kevin oh you did well the company that bought my company mm-hmm. Was dealing a lot with him when I moved to to England and worked for them. So mm-hmm. yes, uh, he actually get, get got me uh, Super Bowl tickets.
0: Wow. Do you have Kevin O'Leary's phone number? No. Oh, okay. No. I don't. <laughs> I was like, you should call him right now. And, no. But that's pretty funny. I mean, that's that's really cool actually. Cause I, it's funny because a lot of people dislike him on Shark Tank and they kind of think that he's like, you know. Uh, a pain in the butt and mean and everything. He's actually my favorite shark on that show. I, I like him better than Mark Cuban and Robert and, and Lori because, I don't know, I've always been like he's my favorite shark. I,
1: I think he's brutally honest.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I follow him a lot on social media uh, and things like that. Um, and I think he's got a lot of good insight because Mark Cuban, I think, has gotten to the point in his career where he's so separated from the general public because he is a billionaire and he sa- likes to say that a lot, you know, and I think, I mean, although Kevin is still worth like $400 million, I feel like he's more grounded than than Mark Cuban. Because you see like Kevin O'Leary online, he'll be, he'll release a video and he'll be in, you know, a suit from the waist up and then in funky pants and put it online. You'll never see Mark Cuban no. do that, you know? So I just think he's pretty cool. But, um, so. <laughs>
1: sidetracked.
0: <laughs> on to the next business. Yeah. After you sold corporate corporate software?
1: Yeah, that was the company that we had in
0: Sweden. Micro Warehouse they incorporated. purchased me. So they called okay. me
1: up basically one day and said, "Is your business for sale?" Out of the blue. Uh, and I said, "Everything is for sale at the right price." Yeah. And I said, and the guy on the phone said, "Okay. I like your attitude, kid. I'll see you tomorrow." So he took his private jet from Connecticut and came to Sweden, and I saw him tomorrow. And then 10 days later, I'd sold my business. Wow. So it was not planned, but it just happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so I sold the business to this company, um, and I handed over my business to them. And they asked me if I would like to move to England, to the UK, London, or Paris, to run the European marketing. And I sat down with my wife and I said, should we do that? You know, it could be fun to live abroad a while. And Paris, I didn't speak French. My wife didn't speak French. She said, England sounds better. We speak English. We can get by in England. And so we basically moved from Sweden to England. Um, and I run their European marketing for two plus years.
0: Wow. So how many languages do you speak?
1: I speak Swedish, yep. English, and some German. Okay. All and right. That, that's plenty for me.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I. I um, follow this guy on YouTube who's Swedish, and uh, he speaks in it. Sometimes a very interesting language. You know, I don't, I haven't been exposed to it a lot, but it's very interesting. Do you want to say something in Swedish? You can say whatever you I can say that, hey, jag är Lars. <laughs> I come from Sverige. I have no clue what you're saying. <laughs> um, what did you just say? I just said,
1: hi, I'm Lars. I'm from Sweden.
0: Okay, very cool. Um,
1: yeah. So basically, uh, it was easy because. I loved what I was doing and, and I had a non-compete clause. I couldn't work for basically mm-hmm. anything for three years. I said, I might as well work for them, um, but it was a nice experience. So when we moved to England, um, we, the kids were young and, and it was fun to, to see them grow and help them grow. So when I moved to England, I think they did about $150 million in revenue. Wow. And when I left two and a half years later, we did about $600 million. Holy crap. Um, I printed, I think, uh, 15, 20 million catalogs every month in 11 languages. And it was fun. Mm. It was nice to see the growth. But, again, non-compete close expired. And I said, thank you. I'm out of there.
0: Yeah. That's that's really interesting. So, obviously, Swedish uh, Swedish is your native language. Yes. Between German and English, which one was more difficult to, to learn? I mean, you know some German, you said. but
1: Yeah. I think from a learning perspective, I think... Um, English was because German is very dram- dramatically closer to Swedish. Okay. Um, but again, um, I think I'm not an expert, so you should ask someone yeah. better to explain that than I am.
0: Yeah. I just thought of this. So I, I, you ever watched Top Gear? Yes. So you know James May? Yes. Yeah. So he said he said he knew one thing in German, and and for the life of me, I can't remember what it was, but I'm gonna try to look it up here in a minute, but. It was the funniest thing. I don't know if you remember that. If you're No, no. okay. Okay, I just figured I'd ask. <laughs> but it was hilarious, and I figured that if you knew it, then it'd be funny to say. But, yeah. all right. Um, the next company was Linen Direct Limited?
1: That was one of them, yes. Okay. So, after the, the time at Micro Warehouse, uh, I started a couple of companies. Linen Direct, Candle Store, uh, which were basically mail orders selling linen and candles in the U.K., and then I started a company called Web Auction to develop an auction software um, in the UK. I actually sold the domain name back to eBay. They purchased the domain because they didn't like what I was doing, but that's a side gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, I was sitting in England. And I said, OK, Sweden has 8 million people, no disposable income. England has 50 million people, some disposable income. US has 250 million and disposable income. Why don't we move to the US? So I said, ah, so I was dealing with my wife and said, oh, maybe we should move to to the U.S. Let's move to the U.S. and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. So in two thousand, we moved to the U.S. um, and basically started the same thing here, mail order companies in the U.S. and we're basically importing stuff from the U.K. specifically. and it was just, just to see if we can figure it out in the US.
0: So that's why you moved to the US was strictly business?
1: Yes. I decided, you know, I wanted I was in the the position that we could move wherever we wanted and, and let's move to the US, see how we like it, if it works, mm-hmm. start a business there and, and see. All so right. I started House of Ascot, which was basically importing unique items from the UK. And the key number there was we imported architectural bookends. Which again, going from software to linen, to candles, to architectural bookends, it's... Architectural bookends?
0: Could you explain (laughs) what that
1: is? (laughs) Architectural bookends was, there was a guy in England, Timothy Richards, that basically made a bookend in the form of a building. So it could be a famous building, like the door of 10 Downing Street. Okay. And then it made it in a bookend that you could have in your library or office, a nice piece of art that was a bookend, basically mm-hmm. uh, and I sold it to a lot of interior designer architects and stuff like that I wanted to have a cool piece in their office or show off and he had various types he had volume pieces he had limited edition that he had this is only going to be like 50 items made and, and so it was like collectors item people collected these okay. architectural bookends
0: so it wasn't like high-quantity some of them were well, okay.
1: Some of the, he had like Ten Downing Street was the door of Ten Downing Street. That was a very volume-based, high volume. Is that he maybe made a thousand a year? Mm-hmm. But then he had the the uh, the With- four temples. That was like fifty. It was like a six thousand dollar piece that wow. he made
0: for a bookend. Yes. Wow. So it was. I honestly <laughs> didn't know that they made expensive bookends like that. I didn't. I would never thought that no, they did so, that.
1: But it, again, very niche. But again, it, it was mail order. Because mail order is, once you've figured out mail order or e-commerce, it's very <coughs> simple. It's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. It it's it doesn't matter what you sell. It's a numbers game.
0: So was that the only item that you were doing with House of Aska? No, we
1: had the architectural bookends. We had from, from Hazel with ceramic wall plaques. And we had four or five different product lines. But basically it was stuff that we found when we lived in England mm-hmm. that we started to what see. What was the
0: most popular item?
1: Hazel. <clears throat> uh, Hazel ceramics was again facades of English building, hand-painted that people collected and put on the walls and they could build their own little high street or main street with different, it could be a butcher and a old-fashioned English. You could create like an English main street.
0: Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah I mean that's cool. So. After that, you have um, Pemberton Farms.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I sold house. You see the trend. I'd start something. I sell it. Start yeah. something. I sell it. Yeah. It's like a trend here. Hey, yeah. I sold House of Ascot. Um, and then what do we do? And then I had a friend in Sudbury where we lived at that time that owned Pemberton Farms. And he had a mail order side gift basket that needed help with. I said, Tom, I'll come and help you on, on the mail order. So I basically helped him for a couple of years put in the right IT system for the mail order, looking at the numbers and finding out what he should do and not do, and basically build his mail order business. Uh, It was a very old way to sort of new way with online ordering and stuff like that. So, uh, but it was again, mail order gift basket this time.
0: Gift baskets? Yes. Okay, so what kind of gift baskets?
1: Fruit basket, wine baskets, um, anything you can find. again, very seasonal. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the people, you know, do holiday gifts and company to but it was basically gift baskets.
0: So were you connecting the companies to the consumers and you were the middleman or you were just con- they, directly they, to consumers? They were
1: making the gift baskets. So I was basically just helping with the, the marketing side of looking at the numbers and, and again, mail order and e-commerce is, is, as I said, a numbers game. So you got to mm-hmm. look, what does it cost to acquire a customer? What is the lifetime value? If it, those matches, you do more of that, kill this, do this. Uh, that's how you grow e-commerce and, and mail orders, basically just it's a numbers
0: game. hmm Very cool. So uh, after that, um, we get to where you are now.
1: more or less. Yeah, yeah,
0: basically. And that's uh Glen, Glen out. sorry. That's um, okay. uh, which is marketing.
1: Well, Glenelg is actually my, my holding company stuff under it. But basically right now I have, um, Glenelg and I have Glenelg marketing. Um, we also own a couple of restaurants. Um, we'll get into that later. Yeah.
0: So, so very cool. Um, so something I was very curious to ask you. So you've, I've never met anybody that has owned a company in the United States and elsewhere, you know, in, in Europe. Okay. Where is it easier to to have a business in the U.S. or Europe? Because you hear how, you know, the U.S. is great for, for entrepreneurs and starting your own business. But what is it like having a business in Europe?
1: It's one thing that um, was a big change for me. So when I had my business in Sweden, uh, Sweden is known to tax very heavily. Mm-hmm. And they taxed the individual quite a bit and they taxed the corporation of the business quite a bit. Uh, And that was actually, I think, the biggest change, the biggest difference. So in Sweden, if your salary was, let's say, 100, the company had to pay 50% in Social Security on top of the 100. So it cost me as an employer 150. Your salary was 100. You had personal tax, which was fifty. So you got fifty in your pocket, mm-hmm. but it cost me one hundred and fifty. So the delta between what it cost me as an employer versus what you received in the pocket was so big in Sweden. So how does small business exist? Well that's tough. That's why it's it's easier to start the business in the US because mm-hmm. the delta between what you as an employer has to pay and what the employee gets is less here in the US versus Sweden. I mean, there are benefits in Sweden because you have other things, you know, free healthcare, free education, yada, yada, But you pay for it. But yes, but it's just a matter of, but so when you start a business, the the cost for an employee is much higher Mm -hmm. in Sweden or in Europe in general versus it is in the US. So I think it's easier to do it here in the US. And of course the market is bigger in the US Mm-hmm. Um, not saying it's easy to have your own business in the US, but I think it's easier than having it in Europe or Sweden. So, is
0: it is it similar in the UK and like England?
1: England is something in between.
0: Yeah.
1: It's less percentage that you pay on top that the employer has to pay. So, here yeah. in the US, you pay it in like 9, 11%, whatever it is, mm-hmm. compared to 50, 60% in Sweden. And I think it was like 35% in the UK Yeah. at that time. But again, I left Sweden 95, I left UK 2000, so I'm sure it has changed.
0: Has it gone up or down? Do you know? I think it's gone up, oh, to be Okay. be so I think yeah. it's
1: even worse. But again, I should not make a statement about it because Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. But no when problem. I left, it, it was big difference. And that's why I said, if I can be successful in Sweden, sort of successful in the UK, I gotta go to the US. Mm-hmm. It was
0: like the green grass mm-hmm uh, yeah I mean I, I I was very curious to ask you that question because yeah, I, I don't know, know I don't know anybody else <laughs> that's done that so it's very cool so as we've gone over so far you've been involved with a lot of different companies mainly software right mail order. mail mail order. Order. Mails, okay yes. so uh, most recently I mean you I mean I would say that right now you're known for marketing in the local area a lot of people you know like marketing is like your website talks about marketing and website yep. building and things like that. So what made you want to ultimately get to that sort of business?
1: Um, I think that I've learned so much during the years. I've had my own businesses, especially in marketing, and how to grow a business that I wanted to share that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I get a kick to help local businesses more than a large business because they are more dependent on their living, so to say, uh, I prefer to, if I ha- can choose between two clients, if I have a local mom and pop shop or a 50, hundred million dollar company, I will go to the local mom and pop shop because if I can help them grow their business or even survive or even stay afloat with COVID, whatever it is, that gives me more personal pleasure than mm-hmm. seeing a big invoice being paid by this company that I'm just a number or vendor
0: for. Hey there. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but I just want to take this chance to tell you to share the podcast on your social media platforms. Link it on your Instagram story. Follow knowledge is power underscore Rhode Island on Instagram and leave a review on Apple podcast if you're listening on that platform. So thanks for listening, guys, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, I mean, I, I have heard that from um, another Person, that's really, that's a really good. I mean, when you go into business, it's good to have that sort of message because it motivates you more than just purely doing it for money. You yes. know, because you know, although money <clears throat> is a, it's a good thing to have, it shouldn't be your main drive in starting a business.
1: No, it should not. And if you, if your goal is to make money and then sell it, you will fail, in mm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. You should do it because there's a why. Why are you doing it? And exactly. The passion and then things will happen and they will fall in place. But if your goal is just to start a business and I said I will sell it in five years, two years, 10 years, whatever it is, then I think there's a higher chance that you will fail than if you start it because you believe in something. I like to disrupt an industry. I did that on my mail order. I'm doing it a little bit with, with the bill negotiation here in the US, so I like to do stuff that basically disrupt an industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, And put the different. I don't think you should start a business do exactly the same as everyone else is doing. Because then it's a tough. You know, you should do something different. You should try to to move that industry forward or sideways, whatever it is, to make it stand out.
0: Yeah, I mean, just as an example, I feel like that sort of disruption has happened in the three D printing industry of recent. You know, recent I say within the past ten years, because you see a lot of. Um, you know, it was very professional, right? Like I was talking before, yeah. um, you have these big companies, Stratasys and 3d systems, both public companies that you can buy their stock. They're massive. They're $650, uh, $600 million a year in revenue companies. Um, but then you start seeing these smaller companies come out and like matter hackers and then you have like Chinese brands like reality and any cubic and all these other things. And the three D printing industry got fun, you know, yep. which is something that hadn't happened before. And you had this company um, MakerBot, which is an American company out of New York, um, and it it's just it was really interesting to see that happen because it disrupted the industry. Yep. It made a three D printer available to everybody. You know, you could buy instead of. Buying a three D printer for twenty five grand, which is I think the least expensive printer that was you could buy, you know, in the early two thousand and tens, to two thousand dollars, yep. and you could get decent models out of it. And I just think that would be that was a good example of disrupting. Yeah,
1: but I I, I I enjoy that, and I I like to find stuff uh, mm-hmm. that changes the way people think or the industry has been thinking.
0: Yeah. So I'd like to get into a few like uh, marketing specific yep, questions. Sure. So um, obviously there's a million different types of marketing. Yep. And right now, what do you think is the most relevant marketing uh, type available?
1: Well, what I have learned is that the money is in your list. Mm-hmm. I've always said, and that's maybe from my mail order, that the money is your customer list. So you should always build a list and the tradition, traditional way to build a list is that you have a form on your website, sign up for our email list. That's not very efficient. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the, the thing that is now is actually good old text marketing. Okay. I love text marketing. Uh, I think it's underutilized. It's very inexpensive and has tremendous ROI.
0: Okay. Um, and ROI is return on investment. Yes. Yeah. So,
1: so let's say again, just to do the, the comparison with email, people have their email list and they might not use it. They should use it, but they might not. So let's say you have a thousand name on your email list. You send out an email, open rate is about 20%, 15 to twenty. percent That's really good. Yeah. You know, let's say 15, 20%. So 150 to 200 people will actually open your email with text. open your text within three minutes. Mm -hmm. So if you have 400 on your text list beats your 1,000, 2,000 on your email list. So people are not using good old SMS, good old text messaging. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very inexpensive, very good return. And if you do it correctly... It, it's a no-brainer. So I think that's something that I think a lot of small businesses is not utilizing right now. That is available, extremely affordable.
0: I didn't know that. I, I I honestly didn't know that. Um, so in in my follow-up question to that is, what type of marketing do you think will be the most relevant in ten years? Ten years? Yeah.
1: Whew. Um. Uh. Right now, video is very important if you want to get your message out mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure I don't I don't think we can say what's going to be uh, 10 years because something is going to pop up uh, that's going to be the big thing but mm-hmm. right now you have to do video um, if you want to do something
0: I think that excuse me perfectly transitions us into Telmo <laughs> <laughs> yes
1: yeah, so, so that's another thing that we so I have a software package that do text marketing. I have another one that do the Telmo Bubble that you might refer to, which is this little video you put on your website. It's awesome. I love it. <laughs> so it it's it's very simple. So you have a little widget, and you add a little code to your website. There's a little bubble that on your website. Uh, the website visitor clicks on it, and then you get basically a full video of whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. and you can then build it. I like to say, you know, you, you use it to build your, the trust and like for your business, and then you can direct the customer what you would like them to do as the next step. Um, again, that's a very nice way to be separate. It's very inexpensive marketing tool. Um, and it, again, video is, is a big thing. Yes.
0: Yeah. So I, it's, it's interesting because I've always thought that transparency in a company is very important. You know, it makes it easier for customers to spend money. And I've put a lot of effort into building a YouTube channel and yep. having content available on my website. Um, and I think that that's a really good point yep. by you. Um, and you see a lot of companies miss out on that. Yes. Um, even like it's funny because I was talking to a, a, a landscaper and I'm like, so there's this guy I watch on YouTube who builds uh, um, ponds, Greg Whitstock, yep. the pond guy. And he has a very traditional pond building business, I think. But some way, somehow, he makes it super invigorating and interesting. Invigorating. Is that the wrong word? Interesting. That's the wrong word. Interesting to um, watch the process of building a pond. And then he goes and talks to the customer after. And he's very happy. And I'm like why don't you try to apply that to your landscaping company and we can put the videos on your website so that whenever, and you only have to make one or two, yep. you know, and then, you know, go to like the best parts where you've built, you know, the best backyards or whatever that you've built that you feel like you built and go in there and interview your customer and show, give a tour. And, um, it'll be a really good way to showcase your work and showcase you. Yep. You're spending money. Through you, and you can see that you're a nice guy. You're very approachable, and the transparency makes it a lot easier for people to spend money. Yes, Um, which I, you know, am an advocate for.
1: Again, it's you build trust. Yeah, and people spend money where they trust the person they're going to deal with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And video is a nice way to build trust.
0: Exactly, Uh,
1: and this little telmo bubble is, is I think, the starting step because you build trust. You have minute and a half and you can build trust. I think you have put it on your website and, and more and more are doing it, but it, it's a nice way to basically engage with your customers and build trust for you, your business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, videos is definitely important.
0: Well, it, and, and the sort of uh, thing that goes along with that is you see a lot of businesses or websites have the, the text to ch- the chat button in like yes. the bottom corner. And I think that does serve a purpose for companies that need tech support. You know fast like something like that but for companies where your main goal is to get information to the customer as quickly as possible in the least amount of clicks the tumble bubble bubbles perfect
1: yes it, it is and the beauty with that is you can also if you want to have a chat you can ask the customer click on the chat button below mm-hmm. and you can start a chat what I don't like with chats on the website is that once the chat is done it's normally you have no way to reconnect with a customer mm-hmm so if you have a chat bubble and you chat back and forth, you can print out the, the document, but you basically haven't opened the communication channel with the customer once you turn the chat bubble down or you end the chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do it through text, you can keep on having this conversation. So there's nice ways you can do this uh, chat function without the normal chat bubble that most people have on their website. But that's the yeah. side side thing, because the whole idea is that you can continue to have the conversation with your potential customer or visitor, whatever
0: it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, so obviously we just talked about a couple of different marketing strategies. Yeah. Um, do you think word of mouth is still a very powerful type of marketing or sort of automatic marketing that exists?
1: Um uh, What's your definition of word of mouth?
0: Networking events like the chamber and okay. and BNI and things like that—that's what I would count as word of mouth advertising.
1: Okay, okay, interesting.
0: Yeah, I have
1: a different twist on that one. Okay, <laughs> that's one part of of word of mouth. I think the new word of mouth is reviews. Okay, I think I think business has to switch from word-of-mouth to do reputation marketing and reputation that's okay it's I don't want I don't I think a lot of companies sell. we sell reputation management so they manage your reputation that's the wrong way you should have reputation marketing you should market your reputation by reviews and feedback Mm -hmm. and there's way too many small businesses that don't use that tool to market their online, because an online review is basically the word of mouth of the twenty 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 one twenty twenty five. So I think online reviews and online, because when you go, if you go to Amazon, you're going to buy something. What's the first thing you look at? The review. Reviews. Yeah. Which is a word of mouth marketing.
0: So, okay. Yeah.
1: And. and if you go to a website and there's basically nothing on your, you haven't built a trust for the visitors. What do they do? Go? They go and Google your business. What do they find? Your reviews. Mm-hmm. So why don't you use your five-star reviews in marketing to build your brand, build your reputation, build your trust? And there's way too many small businesses that don't even pay attention to their online reviews because online reviews and online is basically i think the word of mouth for today's technology
0: yeah i you know it's funny there's a lot of different aspects that go into building a small business and i think other than like money management or whatever you know you need to have sales before you have money i think marketing is probably the uh, and and Taxes and the legal part other than the legal part of building a business when it actually comes to You know, what do I need to do to build this business is marketing is insanely difficult. Yes um, You know, especially if you're in a market where uh, There's a million other businesses exactly yes. the same. Yes and, uh, and
1: right now there's very very seldom you can find something that you are the only one there's always some businesses Mm -hmm. that does exactly the same as what you're doing Mm -hmm. so you're going to find your little specialty your niche that you wanted whatever it is Mm -hmm. but marketing is the key and and getting reviews is is important and again going back to reviews a lot of people don't know that it's illegal to do review gate gating so yeah, I get a kick out of this so what you, is review gating so basically what that means is that you see on the website you did how how did we do thumbs up or thumbs down it's a very popular thing you know give us some feedback thumbs up or thumbs down mm-hmm. and if you click on thumbs up they say oh please leave a review at google on google and if it's a thumbs down you said send us an email yeah that's gatekeeping because you're basically filtering the reviews yeah and that's FTC will get you big fines if you do that. Really? I didn't because know Because that's that. illegal. You have, if you ask for review, you have to publish every single review, but you're not doing that by having two different paths mm-hmm. of the review.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So,
1: so the best way to do it is, is to have a, a, a reputation software that basically ask for the feedback. You publish it somewhere where no one looks at it. And then if it's a
0: good one, you ask them to go to Google. Did yeah. you publish everything yeah yeah it, it, it's marketing is is such a um is, is something that changes for every different company yes and uh it, it and that's where video comes in again Yep, and and and, and it's a very very uh effective type of marketing strategy yep. so another question that i wanted to ask you is what type of company you know, you've, you've, are, you've been in, in the contact with a lot of different ones. Has been most difficult to market? Um,
1: I think it was when we did, uh, when I, I, I didn't mention, but we owned a Ben & Jerry's ice cream store. Okay. Uh, because one, it was a franchise. So the franchisor gave us restrictions what we can do and not do. Mm -hmm. and then secondly it was very seasonal because you had basically 100 days of summer where you sold a lot of ice cream and then you had 250 days where you sold very little ice cream so it was a seasonal and a franchisor that said you can do this but not that so that I think was tough because it took a while to to figure it out once we figured out we did very well, but that was tough. Yes. Yeah. And also, the average order was very low. I mean, the average—you know—you come in and you spend ice cream; it's five dollars, six dollars, ten dollars for an ice cream, uh, versus selling a software for five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So the 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 money you made per ice cream, you need a lot of volume.
0: Well, that's the sort of business where reviews comes into play big time. Yes. So, um, but all right. So now. Ben and Jerry's is a good transition okay. onto the restaurant <laughs> okay. On to Be Good yep. so if you want to explain that restaurant a little okay. bit okay
1: so um, I'll go start with actually Ben and Jerry's okay so um, my, our children we had three kids uh, when started uh, was getting, heading into high school and I wanted to get them involved in the business somehow and mail order is packing boxes and that's not fun for them so I said to my wife what should we do and we said why don't we buy ice cream because the kids can work in an ice cream parlor. Mm-hmm. So we did that, and we uh, got into the ice cream business, and basically, so the kid, kids, our three kids, can get experience of in the business world. And when they went to college, we sold the ice cream place. Um, and then we started to get into the restaurant ice cream business, and then basically after that, uh, we found this Be Good concept, which is basically a restaurant that gives I say it, healthy fast foods. So it's not a fast food restaurant. It's healthy food, better-for-you food. So you can go there and get a burger or a salad and feel good. You're not bloated as you go to a fast food and get a burger and fries. Mm-hmm. Your stomach is bloating. So we own a couple of B goods, um, and it's basically healthy food, a lot of salads, quinoa bowls, kale bowls, good-for-you food. The fries are... Oven baked instead of fried, so it's a little better for you. So it it feels good. Uh, so yes, we started that. We have one in Garden City. Mm-hmm. We have one in Mansfield, Mass.
0: Okay, very cool. So, um, so you obviously said that you started the restaurant for your kids, the yep. Ben and Jerry. So where was your Ben and Jerry's located?
1: In Natick, Massachusetts.
0: Okay, I don't know where that is, but so
1: but again, it was a typical. You know, we purchased the place. um, I did, I think, 250 a year. Five years later, we sold it. Then we did seven, eight $800,000 in sales.
0: Wow, that's pretty good for ice cream. Yes. I mean, for seasonal.
1: Yes. But again, it, we disrupted because when you look at that one, so what we did is we focused on birthday cakes. Okay. Birthday cakes is a 12-month business. Mm-hmm. So we do ice cream birthday cakes. Mm-hmm. So at the end, we were selling ice cream cakes for over $100,000 a year. Wow. year around. Twelve month business.
0: Holy crap! And then, <laughs> maybe I should maybe I should drop everything and start selling birthday cakes. But again, <laughs> you,
1: again, you got to do something that that works and find that little nugget.
0: Yeah. So, um, what was the most difficult part of starting uh, a restaurant? Or staff, be- staff. Staff. Yeah. Okay. Staff. Okay. Finding good staff.
1: Finding good staff, and then uh, keeping them around it's very high turnover in in the restaurant. So, you know, you have 50, 60% that is very loyal to you. They like you. And then you have X percent that just, is like a revolving door that they they work for you one week, one month, uh, two months, whatever it is. And then they move on to the next thing. Well, I'd imagine, especially now it's tough. Now it's impossible to find staff basically. So
0: what are you doing as a business to try to combat the labor shortages? You pay more? Yeah, that's simple.
1: Well, we, 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 I have always paid more than the minimum wage because I don't think you can survive on minimum wage. So mm. I always paid more than minimum wage. But now uh, that is not enough. So we're, we, we have an app for the restaurant and we added that you can add tip to the app. So the cost, so the, and we share that with all the, the hourly employees. So that basically made that the staff could get like a $2 raise by just adding tip to the app, small Mm -hmm. things like that. So now instead of getting $15 an hour, they get $17 an hour, Mm -hmm. which is a big change for them. Yeah. Uh, So you can do stuff like that. And then you can say, well, this, so that I helped a lot to to keep the existing people and get new people because, whoa, I can, because a lot of companies don't allow you to add tip on an app order or an online order.
0: So do you guys do DoorDash?
1: We do DoorDash, we okay. do Grubhub, Uber Eats. Eats. Yeah. But they're they, they are killing the in, restaurant industry because they take so much percentage.
0: Really? Yeah. So I guess I'm sort of evil because I did some DoorDash for a few weeks.
1: No, no but again, you gotta, it's, again, it's very simple math. Yeah. So let's say a restaurant, your meal is $10. Mm-hmm. Food, food cost is, let's say, 30%, $3. yeah. yeah. Labor, let's say, is 30%, $3. DoorDash takes 30%,
0: $3. Yeah.
1: So off those $10, you have $1 left to pay for their facilities, for everything else. There's basically very little money left after DoorDash or Uber Eats takes their commission.
0: Yeah, the little margin that was already there in the food industry, because yes. there's very low margins in the food yes. industry.
1: So so again, if, if you're a small restaurant, um, there, there are other ways to get your online app stuff than DoorDash. Well,
0: I, I do see a lot of uh, restaurants just basically trying to, to integrate it into their website. Yes. So that they don't have to pay any. You know, if they do pay, it's like, you know, 1.4% yes. to the company that's, you know, uh, overseeing the transaction. Yes. But nothing crazy like that.
1: So 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 Uber Eats and DoorDash is between 25 and 30% this the base rate. And then mm-hmm. if you want to do promotion they can take up to 50% of your of your order. So let's wow. say you do promotion with DoorDash or Uber Eats. So it's a lot of money that goes away to those companies. Yeah. Because they got to pay the driver and they want to make a buck or two and they want to go public and they want to be be so it it, it eats. It helps the volume and sometimes it can be worth having a lower margin on that because just to keep the staff active and, and get the product out but uh it's very l- net profit is very low and one thing that i think a lot of restaurants don't think is that you basically give your customer to doordash because they're not the customer of you. doordash has the customer details so doordash doesn't matter for doordash if they buy from your restaurant or the next door restaurant because doordash gets their percentage they're a doordash customer they're not your customer so you cannot Get them to buy directly. So, in our case, when we do, we put in a, a four by six postcard to get them to download our app because then they're our.
0: Customer. Oh, so you guys have an app for ordering we, yeah, so too? We, we, okay. we have
1: an, our own app. Yeah. So, we will put in every order, we put a card, download our app. Mm-hmm. So, trying to convert them from being a DoorDash customer to be our customer and buy from our app and we deliver to them. So we cut out the DoorDash piece, basically, or the Uber Eats. Or.
0: That sort of ties back into you cutting out the middleman with software. Yes. The the less people involved, the better, the more money. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, all right. So <laughs> what is the most effective marketing strategy to run a restaurant?
1: Um,
0: we have been extremely successful with text.
1: Okay. Um, I have a little system basically so we do um, <laughs> I'm afraid I should mention this but basically it's very simple uh, text to win free food for a month okay so you max text to us and, s- yeah. and you enter into our contest to win free be good for a month
0: mm-hmm
1: you if you win you're very happy because you get free food for a month mm-hmm and you're okay to get text messages from us because you entered into our contest um, and what happened is that we have uh, one winner every month get free food our cost is let's say average is ten dollars food cost is three dollars so it's like if they come in every day maybe hundred dollars in cost. Does
0: that ever happen though? if they can't have as anybody no. came in yeah
1: but worst case scenario yep. hundred dollar cost
0: then we have
1: 9,999 not winners. And you send out the message, sorry you didn't win, but here's 10% off your order. They come in and spend money. Mm-hmm. So now you make $10,000 a month on the non-winners. Mm-hmm. That's a very good return on investment.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. That's a- that's a gem yeah. that
1: I would recommend every small business is actually do a contest. Do not one contest is is one-off. Do a regular contest that you give away something to get people to sign up. And then you send out the message to the non-winners with an offer to get them into your Place
0: okay. Well, you just inspired me to do something for my business for a <laughs> giveaway, so I think I'm gonna try to do that later today. And, yeah. um, but that's that's really interesting. So, I think we'll move on to the last part. <laughs> okay. So, community solar, I wanted to touch on this a little, okay? Bit. Yep. Um, so can you explain what that is? Community solar is
1: something that I got involved uh, about a year ago or half a year ago, whatever it was. It's, it's brilliant in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So community solar is um, basically for everyone who rents that don't own the property or don't want to have solar panels or cannot get solar panels. Um, so you basically connect to a community farm of solar panels. You see them when you drive around all these big plants of solar farms and you get the benefit of solar without installing a solar panel. Uh, is you get more benefits if you install your own solar panel, which is, of course, the best. But sometimes you don't want to have it on your house or you rent or you're a small business that cannot do it. But basically, in Rhode Island, anyone that rent, anyone with a national grid account can get community solar. And you basically get solar credits without installing anything. It takes five minutes to sign up. It's completely free. It's a state program. The state guarantees that you get savings on electricity every single month.
0: So is there any quote-unquote catch? The catch is that
1: if you don't like saving money, it will take you about one or two billing cycles until you can get out of it. But Why wouldn't you like to save 10% on an electric bill? Okay, very interesting. Um, It's it's really a no-brainer, in my opinion. And it also helps the local community in... For the environment perspective, mm-hmm. and you you save money, you help the environment.
0: It's a win win. Uh, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, that, that's um that's interesting because solar is is a technology that obviously is going to advance. Yes, and it is most definitely the most popular type of renewable energy that exists yes. right now. Um, and I actually interviewed a guy that owns an energy company, World Energy, it's called, and and he started out doing, uh, you know, lighting, and then he got into solar, and now he's actually into uh, building charging stations for EVs, yep. which is very cool. Um, so, what made you like? What? Where did you hear about this in the first place? And what made you want to get into it?
1: Well, it, again, it was, I don't know who mentioned it to me. I think it was uh, my friend Brendan who did it and said, "Hey, you got to look at this." and I I liked it because it it's he mentioned it I looked into it and it's like wow it's like in a, a no-brainer and again it disrupts a little bit of the industry going back to what I would like to do because National Grid is not that happy because they will make less money mm-hmm um, but um, I, th- I think it's it's something just fell in my lap I would say a lot of things just happen you know you talk to people and you come up with something and happen and then rhode island said it's, it's a state program so rhode island has this program so um it, it it's not a, for everyone uh, you cannot have it in the everywhere in the u.s but it's growing very and i think it's going to explode um this community
0: solar okay very cool um so i mean do you would you say that you're well versed on renewable energies or have you studied it at, uh,
1: um, i just looked into this solar um thing yeah. Okay. Solar and hybrid cars. That's about it, what I know. I'm okay. I'm an expert.
0: Well, I mean, <laughs> I do like to ask people this, you know, do you think that, that solar um, will be still the most relevant type of, um, of renewables in 10 years? Uh, 10 years, no. I think no. something is going to come up. Yeah. Okay. It was always because the, the,
1: the technology and the development goes so fast. Mm-hmm. so I think it's hard to predict what's gonna happen in 10 years what I know is that they say the lifespan on the existing solar farms that they're building is 20 years so the equipment they say is go- should survive 20 years so they basically yeah. say that you're gonna get the savings 20 years on the the but I'm sure technology because if you look back 10 years this now
0: solar has really come a long yes, way. Yes, and,
1: and it might be something else, but um, I think it will be important, but it might not be the number one. I don't know. It It's, it's hard to tell.
0: Yeah. Alright, so I guess I'd just like to recap really quick. <laughs> okay. So we've gone over Basically your whole life story and it's and it's very interesting and awesome. It's it, I've never met anybody who has been involved with so many different types of businesses and has have you have a great life story. And I really wanted to capture it and share it with everybody. Thank you. Um, so the last question I ask every single guest is um, what is one piece of advice of advice that you want to leave the listener could be about life or business.
1: Um, I would focus on business. And I would say, I said it, I think I said it a couple of times, know your numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's too many business people that start a business and they don't look at their numbers. And numbers could be anything from your bookkeeping numbers to your marketing numbers to your spend, how much you spend on stuff. Look at your numbers because everything is driven by numbers in my world is that... Numbers don't lie. And it they are what they are. And look at your numbers. Be on top of your numbers. And make sure that you don't spend. Some wise person said, to be a millionaire is not to make a million. It's not to spend the money you make. So look at your cost. Reduce your cost. Again, numbers. uh, A lot of people just obsessed of revenue, revenue, revenue. And they don't look at their cost to get the revenue. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would say... Look at your numbers. Be on
0: top of your numbers. Well, that's, that's great advice. Um, so, yeah, this has been an amazing episode. I really appreciate you coming on and taking time out of your day. Um, and for those of you listening, uh, like I said in my last episode, you should follow me on Instagram. I just made it the other day, knowledge is power underscore ri. And if you have any questions that you'd like me to ask future uh, interviewers, um Email me at knowledgeispowerri at gmail.com. Uh, so thanks for coming on, Lars. My pleasure. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And, guys, I'll catch you in the next one.